Chemical abortion promises convenience, but it causes silent and unfortunately often isolated pain. Governor Kristi Noem, the governor of the great state of South Dakota, recently issued an executive order instructing the state's Department of Health to create rules surrounding chemical abortion drugs that are distributed through the internet, so-called telemedicine abortions. This increasingly popular, because promoted, by the way, by corporate abortion businesses like Planned Parenthood, method of abortion is on the rise, but basic ethical issues uh, are involved in this, like autonomy, informed consent, the threat of coercion, and the threat of life-threatening and, frankly, even deadly complications. These are all a part of the story of chemical abortion that aren't often told. Abortion should not be accessible through what Catherine Glenn Foster, president and CEO of Americans United for Life, points out are not so much telemedicine abortion doctors as they are truly strangers on the internet. These are people who connect with a patient maybe one or two minutes before, have no relationship with the patient, and then quote-unquote prescribe life-ending and potentially life-threatening to the mother drugs. Women deserve much better from physicians and healthcare providers. They deserve someone who knows them as a patient, someone who knows whether a legitimately free choice is being made, someone who knows the health risks that might be present based on the patient's history, someone who will communicate the realities of the drug effectively, people who care. It seems every week we are discussing a new state-level pro-life law. That is because the men and women who work day in and day out to protect life in their states are active in all the states. Today we are joined by one of those champions of life, Mark Miller. Mark serves as general counsel for the state of South Dakota and works closely with Governor Kristi Noem. Mark and his team... Mark and his team celebrated a great victory recently, and they know that the fight is far from over. So we speak today with Mark on his pro-life journey, his experience behind the scenes of pro-life state lawmaking, and the implications for Governor Kristi Noem's executive order on chemical abortion. I am Tom Shakely, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law from Americans United for Life, where we advance the human right to life in culture, law, and policy. I am Tom Shakely, joined by Anna-Claire Noblet, and today we are thrilled to speak with Mark Miller from the great state of South Dakota. Mark, it's been too long. It's great to speak with you again. How are you doing? Doing very well. Thank you, Tom. It's great to speak with you. Uh, I think as the saying goes... Well, it's an honor to be a guest, or I'm sort of paraphrasing the old saying, or maybe modifying it. It's an honor to be a guest. I'm a, I'm a listener, and now I get to be a guest too. So that's an honor to have. I'm honored to be on your show. That's right. Well, it's a, it's a pleasure to speak with you today, and we've got this great news, great momentum out of South Dakota. I think you know we've been following the realities of chemical abortion uh, for years at Americans United for Life. Katie Glenn, Government Affairs Council here, testifies on chemical abortion during the state legislative sessions. And we do everything we can to try to make sure that state lawmakers who have to make decisions about this are aware of the realities of this. Because as we mentioned uh, in our introduction, right, this is in practice in so many cases 
uh, sort of a growth market from Planned Parenthood and other abortion activists' perspective. They love it because it it allows them to deal directly with people without having to ensure that all those ethical requirements are met. Uh, so from their perspective, I get why it's attractive, but from a patient's perspective, they deserve so much more. And I think that's sort of the heart of what Governor Nome recently did with her executive order, right, is trying to rein in this totally unregulated industry that uh, is putting people, you know, in a place of potentially corporate abuse, right? I think that's exactly right, Tom. I think, as you said in your introduction, that, you know, Planned Parenthood and the pro-abortionists that work in the Biden administration, they try and tell us that abortion should be a question between the woman and her doctor. But as you said, and as uh, CEO for AUL has said, Catherine Glenn Foster, and put it so well, the, the, the truth of it for all abortions is that, or 99% of abortions, is that it's a, a young woman, perhaps even a girl, who do, who's having the abortion performed by what is effectively a stranger. And this takes it even one step further because it's a stranger on the internet. So it it, it really puts the, it demonstrates the lie that the pro-abortion movement has really been peddling since 1973 and certainly my entire life. And, um, but this just takes it to another level and we need leaders like Catherine and Glenn Foster to speak up and call them out on their lies. You know, we're trying to prohibit all abortions, not just telemedicine abortions here in South Dakota, but until we can, until the Supreme Court does the right thing and reverses Roe and Casey, um, it's it's working on executive orders like this one, where we prohibit telemedicine abortions, where we, n number one, try and save children's lives one by one, but number two, make a broader principled point about the value of every human life and how we want our women, um, how we want a society life to be treated and women uh, to be respected. Absolutely. Mark, you mentioned that you actually worked for AUL as an intern during law school. Um, so that's super, super cool how far AUL has come. But tell us a little bit about what the the fight against abortion was like at that time. And did you expect it to get to this point where the Internet was so involved? Well, certainly in 1995, back in the Stone Age, when I uh, clerked at American Journal for Life during my <laughs> second year, after my second year of law school, I did not expect the internet <laughs> to be such a big part of our life. I did. It's it's a funny question, Anna, and I wouldn't have thought to bring this up, but in fact, I did try to work remotely uh, from law school. At the time, I was at the University of Florida Law School in Gainesville. I had been on the board of directors of Gainesville Right to Life, which was an early sort of pro-life crisis pregnancy center type of organization. Mm -hmm. Um, right there in the heart of liberal Gainesville. And we had some pro-life leaders, uh, one woman particularly named Lois Ann O'Malley, uh, who brought me in and, as a volunteer at Gainesville Right to Life. And then one of the deputy attorney general or deputy uh, counsels at AUL, a woman named Judy Kohler, who later became a judge in Illinois. She came and spoke, and then she invited me to, to spend a summer working for American Journal for Life. At the time, its headquarters was in Chicago. And so, no... Uh, even though I spent that summer, a wonderful summer, uh, in downtown Chicago, working for AUL, working with Clark Forsyth, who of course is the senior counsel now, um, I did not um, ever envision that we'd be doing a podcast by uh, mm -hmm. um, over the internet to talk about the cause for life. Twenty five, you know, twenty six years later, at that time we were really just in the wake of Casey, mm -hmm. and AUL was leading the uh, charge in figuring out how to 
respond to Casey in a way to get us to where we are now with, with the Dobbs case pending at the Supreme Court? It's incredible, right? I mean, that that we're still in this place, actually. There's been, you know, certainly many, many good achievements since that time, since Casey. I think the partial birth abortion ban in the early 2000s and the upholding of that by the Supreme Court was a major victory. Um, but it, it, is a, it is a humbling thing to realize that, that these movements, uh, these, these causes for justice are not the sort of things you can snap your fingers and just bring about, right? I think it's to, to some degree, uh, you know, we're, we're raised in that, in the, the cultural milieu, uh, you know, supposes that you could sort of just, you know, if you have a few good events, you know, the culture will change. And it's, it's like, no, it's an intergenerational fight. And that's what you've seen and been a part of. I want to mention too, Mark, you know, many people... Uh, might be hearing this this impressive pipeline that you mentioned, right? Both your journey, but the journey of others from involvement with AUL to judge or to state lawmaker. Um, you know, we, we have uh, friends who've, who've had all sorts of paths um, starting out at AUL, whether in undergrad or in law school or later, and then going on to do even greater things. But you know, it sort of, uh, sort of, you know, reminds me of the the David and Goliath situation, right? Because you know, pick your pro life organization, Americans United for Life, Live Action, Susan B. Anthony List. Whether you know you're a two million dollar a year, five million dollar a year, twenty million dollar a year organization, these are Davids compared to the Goliaths that uh, we encounter on the other side of this issue, right? Planned Parenthood and others, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars in budget uh, and ultimately, you know, involved with billions of dollars uh, in potential subsidies and other things. And you total that and you compare it to an organization that's, you know, two to five million dollars. And it's incredible, actually, uh, the, the impact that we're able to have. And I think that's directly tied right to the, the moral and ethical righteousness of the issue. I think that's exactly right. I mean, we are really in a cause that is a David versus Goliath uh, challenge uh, because, in fact, the money flows to those who are exterminating the unborn children in our country. And um, those who are doing that, those who are endorsing that, don't like that we call them out and call what they're doing by its name, which is killing the unborn. Um, you mentioned, uh, Tom, you know, um, between when I clerked for AUL 95 and now we had a significant battle solid 15 years ago or so over partial birth abortion. But initially, the pro-life movement, excuse me, the pro-abortionists liked to call that abortion a DNX abortion, which just sort of dehumanized what it was. And in a sense, if you understood why they called it a DNX abortion, it was because they put, I think it was the forceps, it's horrible to describe, yeah. but again, we have to call it by its name, into the back of the baby's skull and then split the forceps such that it made an X. But no one understood that. They just know it was called a DNX abortion. The pro-life movement said, no, we're going to call this what it is, which is the baby is crowning and then we're going to stab it in the back of the head. That's a partial birth abortion. That's exactly what it is. And it's how we change the nation's hearts as you know, we're trying to change the nation's laws. It took us a few years, of course, from the late 90s when that issue was identified by leaders like AUL, Susan B. Anthony, National Right to Life, to winning it. Of course, the Supreme Court initially went the wrong way, somehow said this was legal in the United States, this just extermination of, of children half out, half born. Um, but then, you know, thankfully, because of the perseverance of an organization like AUL and the other pro-life fighters here in this David versus Goliath struggle, we got that one fixed. We got that reversed. And now, and that's just a smaller version of what we're trying to do now, where we're, uh, as the pro-life movement, trying to show the, the uh, country 
Number one, in the courts, Roe and Casey were wrong as a question of law. And then number two, in the bigger picture, in our hearts as humans, Roe and Casey, the idea that we're killing children is uh, an offense to humanity, not unlike the other uh, moral um, tragedies that we all know from history. Mark, I'm looking at a, a USA Today article that came out on Wednesday that really described how this executive order came to be. And it talks about how Governor Nome asked you to look through South Dakota abortion law and find where it could be tightened. And, you know, kind of going off of this Texas law, what what have the past few weeks been like for you? And, and how how does that process work behind the scenes of, of really trying to jump around all the, the tape that is there to really find a way to protect these unborn citizens? That's a, Anna, that's a great question. And so uh, besides being the Governor Nome's general counsel in the state of South Dakota general counsel in her governor's office, I have a second role. This is a, an idea the governor had during when she was campaigning for governor. She wanted to make it clear that she was going to be the most pro-life governor if she was elected in the country. And so she created a role called the Unborn Child Advocate. And so when I was brought on to be her general counsel, I think she looked at uh, my background, was familiar, not just that I clerked for AUL back in 95, but also was on the board of directors for AUL in the last few years um, leading up mm -hmm. to coming up here to South Dakota to work for Governor Nome. And so she said, I want you to serve in that role. And I task you with spending every day as part of your day in that role, finding ways to make our state more pro-life to get us ready for the day when Supreme Court, hopefully, this is uh, last year, so before Dobbs had been granted, but get us ready for the day when the Supreme Court does the right thing, finally does the right thing. And so in, in, a, in accomplishing that responsibility that she gave me, an awesome responsibility, um, I have partnered with AUL. Again, I went from being on the board to now being somebody who works with Stephen Aiden, who works with, as Tom said, Katie Glenn, mm -hmm. talks to Clark Forsyth regularly, and also works with these other groups like Susan B. Anthony List, like National Right to Life in looking at our laws and looking at ways to make them more protective of life. And so we identified months ago that although our informed consent law, we believe in South Dakota and certainly the longtime uh, people on the ground, legislators on the ground thought our law did a pretty good job of making sure telemedicine abortion could not be done in a way to get around our informed consent law, which requires an in-person meeting. Uh, in working with pro-life leaders, we realized we can make that even stronger. And so I began speaking with pro-life leaders like Katie Glenn at a American United for Life, um, like uh, Marjorie Dansfelder at Susan B. Anthony. And we developed this approach um, that we then adopted for South Dakota uh, in terms of making sure it's absolutely clear we will not have telehealth abortion in South Dakota uh, with the Biden administration uh, having done everything it can to make it easier to kill children in the womb. We are going to do everything we can at the South Dakota state level to prohibit that from happening. Mm. You think there are people in other states who share a similar position as you? I mean, it sounds like a really unique position to be able to devote your time on the staff to, to thinking about this issue. Yeah. Is there one of these in California or New York? Mark? <laughs> <laughs> You know, I don't, I'm pretty sure that uh, there's none in, in California or New York, unfortunately. Um, you know, it's interesting, again, going back to my er, the early years with AUL 
in the 90s, which of course AOL goes back to the early 70s, but my early years, at least as a, as a law student and then lawyer, even Mario Cuomo, so former Andrew, Governor Andrew Cuomo's father, he was more hospitable to life than the pro-left abortion is now, and certainly his son, although he was not particularly strong on abortion, and he used to be criticized on that, Governor Mario Cuomo. Uh, he did uh, have a task force on euthanasia that came out pretty strongly against euthanasia. This was in 94, and so it sticks in my mind because it was an example of the sort of the old school Democrats, even though he was pro-abortion personally um, and he was not good on abortion, you know, AUL, of course, looks at this as, you know, beginning of life and end of life. And uh, Cuomo was pretty good on euthanasia and his task force had done an excellent job explaining why euthanasia shouldn't be allowed. Um, so um, in terms of other states, I know that, you know, the states where they have pro-life governors, they're doing excellent things. I don't think there's another unborn child advocate in the country. Um, I work closely with uh, certain states, uh, attorney general's offices, Louisiana, for example, Jeff Landry in Louisiana, uh, the attorney general and his solicitor general, Liz Merle, they're very pro-life. And not surprisingly, Louisiana being one of the leaders in the country on, on pro-life laws for decades. Um, South Carolina, Governor McMaster is fantastic. Obviously, Governor DeSantis is a strong pro-lifer. Uh, he has a lot to fight with in, South, in, in Florida. I think I saw in Florida that last year there were 70, almost 75,000 abortions, 900 late-term abortions in Florida. So Governor DeSantis certainly has his work cut out for him, but we know he's a strong pro-lifer. So I work with um, governors, general counsels across the country, uh, attorney generals across the country that are pro-life. But I am blessed that I am in this position as not just Governor Noam's general counsel, but also her unborn child advocate, such that I can make sure abortion is number one on our priority list in Governor Noam's office. So impressed with South Dakota. I mean, less than less than a million people, but mighty in leading. An outsized impact. Yeah. Effort. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's it's important too. I think you know, Mark, you mentioned uh, you know the, the Cuomo family in New York, and I mean they are emblematic as much as somebody like you know uh, Governor Robert Casey, and then his son, U.S. Senator Bob Casey in Pennsylvania. This transition you have from uh, sort of a family elder in political life who was more moderate, and and this is not a matter of opinion. I mean, as you're saying, like you can look at the record and say far more moderate. Uh, and that's sort of the least charitable characterization to say that they were moderate on some of these issues. You know, in the case of euthanasia, as you mentioned for Cuomo, uh, the father, you know, opposed it. Um, and yet there's this drift that happens. And, you know, one reading of that can be that this is just sort of the drift of polarization in our national life, you know. Um, but another reading is that once you accept the logic uh, that human beings are sort of, you know, that the, that their their dignity derives from what they're able to do or not do, right? That their dignity can be diminished, say, if someone has a handicap or if someone's born with special needs or if someone's identified in utero with special needs, uh, that maybe they're not as important, right, is, is sort of that consequentialist or utilitarian view. And once you accept that kind of thinking, to me, it's the, it's the most obvious thing in the world that you would have that drift from, like, that father and son in Pennsylvania or New York where... The father may be raised in a different cultural milieu, one where there was kind of a, a lot more cultural, um, you know, respect for the diversity and the pluralism of a society that has all sorts of people sort of, you know, welcome everybody attitude and take pe folks as they are to uh, that logical drift that says if we can 
get rid of certain people, through choice, of course, is the argument, then maybe we should, right? The logic is there, right? So it's I think polarization plays a role, but to me, it's the underlying logic that I think we have to be careful of, don't you think? Absolutely agree with you, Tom. And, and that utilitarianism, um, that um, effort on the side of the left to say more lives are valuable than others is something we've seen in South Dakota. We took on this year a Down syndrome, you know, prohibition on abortion motivated by Down syndrome diagnosis or even a test that indicates you may have Down syndrome. Um, we've seen similar laws across the country. Of course, Justice Thomas, one of the reasons we uh, brought that law this year or brought that bill this year, that was Governor Nome's office that brought that bill. South Dakota is sort of unique uh, or among states in that a governor can actually not officially endure, uh, introduce a bill. It does have to go through a legislative committee, but it is, co is considered the governor's bill, as opposed to in most states where the governor would have to find a legislator to introduce the bill, legislator. So that's sort of unique. And one of the bills we brought this past session was to prohibit abortion motivated by Down syndrome. And what was amazing about that, Tom, is we turned around this utilitarian idea and used it against the left. And we said how offensive, it was effectively an argument uh, where the, we were adopting the argument of the left. Like, how can we mistreat those who are disabled? How could you ever take the life of someone uh, disabled, someone who has a Down sy syndrome diagnosis, someone who has Down syndrome? Sure. We, we had individuals come testify who had Down syndrome and were just remarkable. They brought tears in the audience and actually on the legislative panels, people were crying. And we, what do we see when we... When we called abortion what it is through this prism of the Down syndrome specificity uh, in the bill, we saw a unanimous South Dakota legislature, both in the House and the Senate, Democrats and Republicans, saying we will not have this in South Dakota. So when we as a pro-life movement make it clear this, the humanity of the unborn, the uh, liberals can't fight us. And that's why they try to obfuscate. That's why they try to turn this into, well, it's expensive. Well, women need choice because they're in a hard position. They, they are in a difficult position. Absolutely, we have a moral and uh, country has a legal responsibility to help women after the child is born. That's a very fair criticism we get in the pro-life movement that we have to address. But at the same time, the fact that we need to do a better job addressing that point doesn't change the fact that as humans, as Americans, we have to protect the unborn. All life has intrinsic value. That's what our Declaration of Independence stands for. That's what, and that really, to me, is sort of the conscience of the Constitution, which is the Declaration of Independence. That's a term Tim Sandifer of Goldwater Institute came up with, um, the conscience of the Constitution. And uh, the right to life is the underlying right, and it can't be only some lives. We've seen that. I don't want to go on too long, but we've seen that uh, in this Dobbs conversation the, the pro-abortionists, in my mind, are making a tremendous mistake, at least I hope so, because they're emphasizing how Dobbs and then this new Texas heartbeat law are making it harder, they say, for uh, women of uh, lesser means and minorities to get abortions. And so effectively, they are falling back on what Margaret Sanger really wanted when they she are. effectively set in motion Planned Parenthood, which is we have to have the right to abortion so that the poor people can kill off poor children, uh, which of course is one of the most morally offensive things of the 20th century um, that even Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes fell into that mistake. And then, and then there with the disabled, 
um, with Justice Holmes saying, you know, three three generations of imbeciles is enough. It was incredible. But that sort of utilitarian thinking that Holmes had, that Sanger had, the pro-abortion movement falls back into it. They don't realize how uh, monstrous they sound. The idea that women of color, they say, need to have abortion just gives the game away. They don't want to see people who don't look like them, uh, more of them. That's at bottom line. If that's not what they mean, they need to figure out what they're saying because that is the implication of what they're saying. No, that's right. I mean, I think, Anna Claire, you remember we were both in the room at Senate Judiciary earlier this year with Catherine Glenn Foster when she testified on on WIPA, uh, the abortion expansion bill. And, uh, you know, Senator Blumenthal there is up there, you know, chairing the committee hearing. Senator Blumenthal is no friend of life. He's a, he's a you know, a vociferous advocate for Roe and for abortion culture. And in the course of the testimony from the different witnesses, right, they had, you know, uh, because the Republicans are in the minority uh, or, you know, functionally in the minority in the Senate right now, uh, you had fewer pro-life witnesses and you had more pro-abortion witnesses in the hearing. And one of those pro-abortion witnesses, Mark, it was incredible, was uh, a young woman of color, an immigrant uh, who came to the United States and she was there and she was held up. Um, as a victim of various injustices, I think of, of an abusive background, of coercive background. And she was held up as an example of, of you know, the, the, the framing was sort of, thank God that this young woman could get an abortion because she, she certainly couldn't thrive anywhere else. And I think, yeah, in this, in this era of identitarianism, which is loathsome, by the way, I mean, it's, it's just loathsome that any time you see a, a picture of a person or a group of people in America that there are folks who would give in to say, we want you to see their gender, which is also fluid and may not exist. And we want you to see their race, which is also fluid and may not exist. And that's all they are, right? But that's what they did with this young woman. And, and the mm -hmm. dynamics of that in this identitarian age, I couldn't help but notice, you've got then a, a group of US senators, I mean, just the chair alone, his net worth, but you combine that with the rest of them, you've got a panel of senators on the dais whose net worth is well north of $150 million collectively talking about how this poor immigrant has no other option than abortion, which means that it wasn't a choice if she felt that she had no other option, no other future than abortion. And the result is one fewer child of color in America. And you've got a dais of largely white senators applauding it. It was just dystopian to witness that, wasn't it, Anna Claire? It was, it was tragic. And, and I really had, you know, had so much empathy for this woman who, who her definition of freedom and coming to America was, um, was being distorted by, by really this coercion, like you said. And, and it was just, I was looking at these senators thinking, how, why do you get to make decisions for her? And, and why, why are you holding her up as, as the perfect example of someone who needs an abortion. And, and, and there was, there was really no, um, there was just no compassion in, in their example of her. She was being used as, as this, this kind of poster image of she can't do this. She has to have this access. And, and she had totally bought in. And it was so sad because she just did not believe in her ability to be a mother. And she was a mother to one child. And she talked about how having other children were not an option for her. And, and, so, and so I think I just heard so much of their rhetoric 
in her perception of her identity as an American. And, and, and that's dystopian, what right? Really sad. Because, you know, it's like any one of those senators could could take out their checkbook, take out their wallet. And in general, if they had to, they could give her three or five thousand dollars without noticing a change in their bank balance. Right. And that three mm-hmm. or five thousand dollars would be literally life changing for her and life giving for the child that was aborted. And yet that default response of charity or Absolutely. lack of it in this case, then gets turned around. It. And it's only pro-lifers like you, Mark, who are advocating mm-hmm. for real societal changes who then get held up and they say, but what are we really doing to make it possible? And I say, that's, that's a question that we actually are answering in the form of 3,000 pro-life pregnancy centers across the United States. That form of that, yes. that charitable response is one that's already being put in place. And I know we're talking about, in many cases, state laws as well that can maybe do more. Um, but the dynamics, I think, are changing in these states. And I think they're changing because of the boldness of folks like Governor Nome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ultimately, they are saying, we want to give you access to abortion because we don't want more of you. And that, that, that's, that like you said, Mark, that's the underlying message. And, and if, there, if this movement is really going to be a, a human rights champion, like it claims, this, this isn't believable. And I think the way you just put it, we need to, you need to have the right to an abortion because we don't want more of you is just a very wonderful sort of pithy way to boil down the pro-abortion movement, the, whether it be Blumenthal, uh, Pelosi, mm-hmm. anyone on the left, AOC. Uh, this idea, their, their lack of compassion, that's another word you used, Anna, their lack of compassion for these women, this idea that they can simply uh, erase a human life and somehow that is helping these women rather than actually hurting them for the rest of their life because now they have to live for the rest of their life with the reality of what they did. And instead, they should be using that, what the left likes to think is this compassion that they supposedly have uh, when they spend other people's money. And they need to, uh, you take that idea of compassion, what the left likes to think it has the market cornered on, and look at what the right is doing, as Tom said, with crisis pregnancy centers, with the old school maternity homes. Um, I know there's another term for it we use these days, um, but uh, pregnancy resource centers, I think, is what we often hear them call sometimes. But I think of maternity homes, the idea we, that we give moms who are looking for, uh, to choose life but need a helping hand up and help them find a job, help them uh, get the life skills, perhaps their GED, such that they can... Uh, give that child that they've chosen to give life to the opportunity to be successful beyond their means, which is really, you know, the American dream. Certainly why at least my great-grandparents um, from Europe and Ireland, um, middle Europe came here to give their descendants exactly. a better chance at life. And that's what, you know, we try to do as pro-lifers. I really do believe the pro-life movement uh, is like a left sort of mo- a liberal movement in the, t- the old school traditional sense where we speak up for the defenseless. That's what um, the left likes to think it, its calling is, is to speak yeah. up for those who have no one to speak for themselves and who more represents that than the unborn. Mm-hmm. So when we do this, and that's one of the reasons I've been drawn to AOL my whole life, I certainly just was blessed when I was 24 years old to meet um uh, an attorney with AUL, Judy Kohler, and then come to work with Clark. But the reason why I've stayed so close to AUL is because it has that compassionate piece, that idea that we are there for the woman, not just before birth of the baby, but after. 
AUL has its priorities in order in that way. And if the rest of the country would simply listen to AUL and let's give AUL as much money as Planned Parenthood has, and the country would be a much better place. <laughs> well, we got folks listening right now, so that's a starting point. <laughs> yeah, I think absolutely. Of, yeah, that, that need for a continuum of care, there's a, a pro-life group that, in Philadelphia where I grew up called the Pro-Life Union of Greater Philadelphia, and they realized that as a part of that, um, you know, both the immediate response, uh, pro-life pregnancy resource centers, uh, but then maternity homes as well, and they created a home because they realized that there was a, a gap in sort of the continuum of of choice, actually, of legitimate life-affirming choice for mothers like uh, the one whom we saw at that Senate Judiciary hearing who already have a child uh, and who who are pregnant again and, and need some help. And, uh, you know, there, there are two, two things about the abortion culture that are often mythologized. One is that the only people who are getting abortions are those uh, in situations uh, of, of either extreme or moderate financial hardship. That's, that's definitely an, a, a percentage of abortions. It's, it's a not inconsequential percentage, but it's not the majority. If you look at a, a breakdown uh, socioeconomically of who's obtaining abortions, um, a huge percentage uh, are coming from people at the highest brackets uh, in terms of, of wealth and prosperity in America. These are very much, um, in general, what we would call elective abortions, abortions of choice. There's no health risk that would cause someone to feel they need to do this. Uh, there's no underlying condition other than sort of a default, I don't want to be pregnant again. I don't want to have this child, whatever it is. Uh, and so it's not purely uh, financial reasons that are driving abortion culture either. It's also the fact that it is marketed. It's marketed as a good in and of itself, uh, as if there are no moral and ethical concerns. And so I think that's one aspect that it's important for us to share too, because we can sometimes as pro-lifers get boxed into that dynamic where our opponents are saying, not until you create, you know, 3000 more of these centers, not until you, you put these bills in place and you realize if we took this approach of never being able to act to resolve an injustice until every underlying injustice, every underlying inequity was resolved, we wouldn't be able to pass any laws whatsoever. And so at a certain point, you've got to act. And I guess that leads to what we've kind of been touching on here in certain cases, Mark. Uh, I'm, I'm curious to hear from your perspective um, with Texas's recent heartbeat bill. I think just from a rhetorical standpoint, I know there are a lot of opinions about the law itself, uh, its merits and demerits in terms of its ability even to stand up under the Roe and Casey regime. But you know, from the rhetorical standpoint, that heartbeat language, which I know has been growing for a few years, seems like a gift, right? It seems like what you're des describing there is that shift from, no, we're not going to call them D and X abortions. We're not going to sanitize this. We're not going to call it a fetus. It's a baby. Um, we're not going to call it, hey, what do they want to do, a uh, fetal pole cardiac activity? It's a heartbeat, right? It helps, it helps reveal the, the reality of the child in a whole new way, doesn't it? Absolutely. The, you know, the, the Texas law which if I, if I understand correctly, had Jonathan Mitchell, former Scalia law clerk, had a lot to do with uh, working behind the scenes on it with the Texas legislators, is, uh, and that whole concept of the heartbeat bill, which is certainly not a new one to us as pro-lifers, but the idea, in some sense, it's like partial birth abortion, and that it took a development of an idea to put the humanity into the issue in a way that was undeniable by the abortion left. And so similarly, uh, although I've heard some pro-lifers say, well, uh, horses have a heartbeat and other, you know, uh, it's not just humans that have a heartbeat. 
I get it, uh, and I and I know they mean well. But the bottom line is, the, Americans understand when you say that child has a heartbeat, what that means. It means it's not just a fetus, as you said, Tom. It's not just a clump of cells. This is a a human being at the earliest stage, no different than an elderly person in a nursing home who maybe is confined to bed. There may be a size differential, but it's still a human person, still a human being that should be accorded the natural law rights that you and the three of us on this call are, are accorded. And in fact, our law traditionally, as Clark Forsyth has traced in all of his research and his uh, different books, uh, that really predates even the Reconstruction Amendments. But this idea, our, our law, our common law, protected the right of the unborn to um, to inherit to um, to life generally, because you know abortion was considered uh, out outrageous. Clark really, to me, is one of the national experts on that issue. So uh, the heartbeat bill, whether it has merits, demerits, if we're talking about the private cause of action, um, I know here in South Dakota we're looking very carefully uh, at the private cause of action and the heartbeat bill, how they. Uh, linked the protection of life to when that heartbeat is detectable. It's been generally called, I think, a six-week ban, but I don't think the language of the bill specifically ties it down that strictly. Um, it's more just when you can detect the heartbeat in any individual case. Um, and the private cause of action, the left doesn't like it. The left is infuriated about it. And generally, uh, from my experience, when you're over the target is when you start taking flack. And so they don't like it because, again, <clears throat> it's going to protect more life. And so those who are looking to make money off of aborting those children don't like it at all. And so now they're really unhappy. That's what I know. We spoke with uh, Steve Aiden recently, right after the law came out, and we, we sort of joked. I know in the past we've been reticent about heartbeat bills and, and still are in, in respect uh, to the Roe and Casey jurisprudence. Uh, just about their long-term workability. But because heartbeat bills never went into effect before Texas, they were always enjoined and held up before they could actually take effect and, and be law in the state. You know, Texas, this is the first case where at least for the time being, uh, heartbeat bills are saving heartbeats. They're saving lives for the moment. Certainly, as someone who's been affiliated with AUL a long time, I'm a big believer in incrementalism that, and Tom, you, you kind of, you know, was we're touching upon this at the beginning of this uh, podcast when you described how, you know, we'd love just to win, absolutely, life be protected, snap our fingers, you know, a couple of interesting articles or bills, and boom, we should just win. But it's not been that simple, and it's been AUL at the vanguard of shepherding pro-life legislation state by state uh, with model bills to get us to the point of Dobbs. I know AUL uh, um, most likely uh, maybe had something to do with the uh, language of the Mississippi law that's at issue in Dobbs. Um, whether or not it did, the bottom line is AUL has been very involved with getting us to this point very carefully, trying to go with the court to get justices like Chief Justice Roberts, um, Justice Kennedy, who of course was in, on the wrong side of things in Casey, but now Justice Kavanaugh, Justice uh, Amy Coney Barrett, Scalia, uh, excuse me, Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas to come along and, and even, again, the humanity of the unborn, we would hope, would call out to the uh, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagans on the bench, even if it's unlikely. You would think at some point they would have to just admit the humanity. And so even though the Texas bill may not necessarily be exactly in line with that incremental approach, you can argue, I think, among us in the movement. I'm a big believer in Reagan's 11th commandment that we shouldn't be shooting at each other. 
Um, that's right. You know, Republicans don't speak ill of each other and pro-lifers shouldn't be speaking ill of each other. So I, what I like to think is rather than think, well, this is an outlier in that incrementalist movement, rather, this is just a way of showing the Supreme Court that the pro-life deluge is here. This country is pro-life. At a minimum, it's time for, Do for Dobbs to eliminate the Casey and Roe viability line. It's time, by the way, it doesn't get mentioned enough, to go get rid of Doe versus Bolton's health exception, which basically gives us abortion on demand, that the pro-life movement, we've for some reason not been able to break through, presumably because the left-wing media doesn't like the truth, which is the Doe versus Bolton health exception for the right to an abortion effectively gives us an abortion on demand, regardless of what our state laws say. We need the Supreme Court to say that Roe, Casey, Doe versus Bolton are going to be cast on the waste pile of precedent, no different than Plessy, no different than Dred Scott, which of course we needed to amend the Constitution to do. So hopefully this is more like Brown and Plessy, and we will finally be out from under the thumb of the, the Roe decision, which of course was a bunch of uh, men, you know, the pro-life movement, or the pro-abortionists like to say this is men trying to tell women what to do. Well, that's what Roe was. And so um, the time has come. And so whether the Texas law wins at the end of the day, I don't know. I'm not smart enough to know that question. But what I do know is it shows the Supreme Court we're ready for that Dobbs decision to go the right way, to go the way Casey should have gone uh, 20 years ago. Mark, looking forward Third. after this week, what do you, ago. yeah, 30 years ago. <laughs> um, looking forward after this week, where do you see the hearts of, you know, citizens of South Dakota? Have you, are you encouraged by their response? Um, do you think that there is, you know, more of these steps coming in your state? You know, I am not a fan of Twitter, but I would say this is a place where we could use hashtag winning, that um, pro-lifers are winning in South Dakota and in the country. That Down syndrome ban on Down syndrome motivated abortions is a good example of it. As I said, it. it was unanimously gotten through the House, unanimous in the Senate, in committee, and uh, in the full House and full Senate. And, and so Democrats recognize the humanity of the unborn, ultimately when they follow the logic out, they're going to have to concede that that just like a, you shouldn't have an abortion motivated by Down syndrome, you shouldn't be aborting a child for any motivated reason, other than perhaps a question for another day. But you know, we're truly uh, it's a mother's life in danger, and we're talking about self-defense or perhaps a defense of others sort of perspective that the common law has always accounted for mm -hmm. that we can protect life and 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 have a secondary effect and. Um, you might want to well, jump that's, in no, on I mean, that, that's but. exactly right. That's what I think one of the biggest, you know, misconceptions as well in this conversation is you have folks, even many pro-lifers who will say, oh, yeah, we need abortions for, for health uh, reasons or, or medical reasons. You say any time there's a legitimate medical intervention needed, say, for instance, if it turns out the mother, you know, is diagnosed with an advanced form of cancer or something, you may deliver the child early, right? You may have to remove the child uh, or, you know, in the case of a cancer, for instance, you may have to treat the cancer. And a result of that treatment might be that the child doesn't survive the pregnancy. But the intent, right, the intent of, say, chemotherapy for the mother with cancer who's pregnant, the intent of the chemo is not to say, we're going to try to kill this child with the chemo. No, the doctor, if they're a good doctor, are going to do everything they can to sustain both patients, 
right? And so this idea that that we need some abortions as pro-lifers for medical reasons, that's not what an abortion is. You know, there may be instances where the child doesn't survive and where that's foreseeable, that the child almost certainly will not survive, absent miraculous circumstances. However, you know, an abortion is definitionally, right, the intentional killing, the intentional ending of, of the child's life through like that, that very gruesome DNX procedure you mentioned, Mark, totally, totally different from what we're talking about when we're talking about treating a mother's health condition. That's, that's absolutely correct, Tom. And, uh, you know, it's taken us the, you know, the 50 years since Roe when, you know, Roe was, you know, an out of left field decision, you know, with no evidentiary record, as again, Clark Forsyth has done such a wonderful job of, of explaining in his book. I think it's abuse. Are you saying they just made it up as they went along, Mark? (laughs) I know they just made it up as they went along. I was actually looking on my, uh, bookshelf for, um, I believe it's called abuse of discretion, where it Clark is, explains yeah. how outrageous um, the uh, Roe versus Wade, the, the leading up to Roe, how we got there, um, you know, being twice argued and the fights behind the scenes and the lack of an evidentiary record. And, and it's taken us 50 years to sort of unwind and unpack all of the lies that uh, went into that decision, that have gone into upholding that decision. Uh, Governor Nome signed on to a brief in the Dobbs case on behalf of women professionals and scholars that un- that attacks, it's uh, written by uh, Professor Helen Alvarez, who I think is on the Board of Advisors for AUL, written by Teresa Collette of uh, St. Thomas Law School in Minnesota. An incredible brief. And it ex- yeah, incredible brief and explains on behalf of 240 or so professionals and scholars, Governor Nome being one of those professionals, the the first on the list, uh, if you will, uh, on that brief, on that wonderful friend of the court brief. And it explains that Casey was premised on this false idea that professional women's women need the right to an abortion to be successful. And the brief does a wonderful job of unpacking the lies there, how women were uh, making headway in the workforce before Roe, and that in the years since, since Casey, especially the right to abortion has, you know, people have been getting less and women have been getting less and less abortions, yet women are becoming more and more successful. So this idea that somehow the right to an abortion is why the doors have opened for women is bogus. It was a bogus argument used by the plurality in Casey mm-hmm. uh, to uphold the, the monstrosity that is Roe. And uh, I'm optimistic that our 50 years of work in the movement um, is leading to a better result. And, and the people of South Dakota... Uh, I think reflect where the country is on this issue. Yeah, that's right. I think too, you know, the, this this action that Governor Nome has taken and that your office has taken with respect to uh, chemical abortion drugs is just so key. I think as, as we start to come to a close here and reflecting on this, you know, the 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 telemedicine push, right? And this is absolutely uh, a case where Planned Parenthood and abortion activists have taken advantage of COVID to try to reorient society. You, know, you can look up and see all sorts of conspiracies, yeah, the Alex Jones stuff about the Great Reset and you know, the new, new Order and all this stuff. But, but some folks are very open about the fact that, yeah, we, we do want to use this crisis for our opportunity, you know, to paraphrase Rahm Emanuel from a decade ago. And you know, the, the country has shifted in its polarization. We recently relaunched uh, AUL.org, a brand new website. If you haven't been there recently, do visit it uh, and find out ways to engage with us. And I was amazed in going through some of our archives uh, from, this was, I think, a 2000, 
nine uh, post by uh, one of our former presidents, Dr. Charmaine Yost. And Charmaine writes in there about how she and other representatives from AUL met with members of uh, senior senior members of the White House as you know what became Obamacare was was getting underway, and they met with them for the purpose of appealing to them, you know, for you know common sense protections, things like Hyde, basically, to make sure that Obamacare wouldn't involve needless taxpayer funding of abortion, wouldn't implicate Americans in abortion when there's so many conscience um, aspects to that and legitimate conscience aspects to that. And I thought, you know, to myself, just as an amazing sort of a time capsule of how advanced our polarization has become. And it really is, I mean, it comes down to abortion. It comes down to this misunderstanding of who the human person is. And it's driving, I think, the rest of it. Uh, And it's all caused by what the Supreme Court opened in in opening Pandora's box with Roe. Um, Today, you know, 10, 11, 12 years later, the idea that, you know, a pro-abortion organization like NARAL would even try to meet with a Trump administration or that a pro-life group like Susan B. Anthony List would even try to meet with a Biden administration to have one of those kind of good faith legislative or policy related conversations. You would sound crazy if you promoted that idea, right? The people in the, in the white house would laugh you out of the room. What do we have to talk about with you would be the attitude. Uh, And so the polarization has set in. It's not something that I'm, I'm saying to just bemoan. I don't think there's any point of bemoaning it. It's just the reality. Uh, and I think the reality has been driven by this stuff uh, on life. And so I'm really grateful for Governor Nome in realizing that telemedicine is a real good. There are real forms of telemedicine where patients know their physicians and vice versa, where real medicine can be practiced. But abortion uh, is not a form of medicine ever, and that its expansion is very much desired by Planned Parenthood and others who understand they've seen, right, for decades, pro-lifers offering women real alternatives outside of abortion facilities and they look at something like chemical abortion prescribed through the internet and they say aha perfect solution you can't protest with telemedicine Mm -hmm. nobody can be there to provide uh, a a mother and a father alternatives we're going to box pro-life americans out of even being able to show solidarity or charity for one another so there's all sorts of practical reasons why if you're in favor of abortion you love it and there's all sorts of practical reasons why I think you and Governor Nome have taken this action. That's absolutely right, Tom. Um, the, the pro-abortion movement wants to hide what it's doing because the reality of what it's doing is so outrageous to anyone who actually looks at it for what it is. Creating a telehealth abortion, uh, doing what it can to, the Biden administration doing what it can to sort of enhance the opportunities for telehealth abortion so that a woman, say, in South Dakota or a girl in South Dakota could talk to a doctor in Minnesota and get some pills mailed to her uh, that would ex- kill the unborn child, but also put her life in danger because by our state law that was supposed to be done in person. You know, again, our state legislature, our governor don't want to see any abortions, but until that day, our laws attempted to prohibit that from happening. But Biden was doing what he could, the Biden administration. So we came in and stepped into that breach and said, absolutely not going to happen here. We will put in emergency rules to make sure it doesn't happen here while the Biden administration tinkers with the machinery of death to sort of take a line of Harry Blackman and put it the correct way um, on abortion. And um, that's what my my charge is here as the unborn child advocate is to make sure we are fighting Planned Parenthood um, tooth and nail yeah. as they try to exterminate the unborn here in South Dakota and we save their lives the idea being South Dakota, as Governor Nome will explain, will tell you, we have the number one economy in the country. 
the way she handled uh, the pandemic has led to us having, I think, the lowest unemployment rate in this in the country, state by state, um, one of the best state GDPs. And so there's no better place to mm -hmm. uh, be young, to raise a family, to grow up than in South Dakota. And we want to be a state that welcomes life. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm here. That's why I'm so grateful for AUL that in uh, carrying out my responsibility that Governor Noam has given me, that I can work with the experts at AUL um, to make sure I'm living up to what she wants from me. Thank you so much. We 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 really, really do applaud and are so excited about your work because I think what people misunderstand and and don't even realize about chemical abortion is that the FDA has compromised on it during COVID. Um, there are not thorough protections. There are not thorough even studies at this point on how to really care for women when they're in their most vulnerable um, state in this desperation to, to make a decision that is tragic and often private and often um, alone. And, and so I think, um, yeah, I think we just have to keep talking about it and we have to keep exposing this reality and, and saying, you know, a lot of things change with COVID and this is not something that is going to become permanent. We just, we just cannot let it and, and we've got to start calling it for what it is. So thank you so much. And, and every single show we wrap up with a shot of gratitude because we talk about some, some heavy topics and you're a <laughs> listener. So, so you are familiar with the shot of gratitude, but Mark, what is something you are grateful for today? So I am grateful um, for organizations like AUL and Susan B. Anthony List, uh, National Right to Life. Uh, um, I've already done so many call outs, but I'll mention it, uh, ACLJ, say Jay Seculo. I'm grateful for leaders. You know, I've been a lawyer for 25, 26 years now, um, 25 years. And uh, it's leaders like Jay Seculo, like Clark Forsyth, um, like Marjorie Dannensfelser, uh, who basically throughout my professional career have led the pro-life movement. And I'm grateful that I'm able to sort of follow in their footsteps and try and do um, something um, along the lines of what they did in, in a small way. Um, you know, I uh, pointed out to you, Anna, you can't, you know, this is not a video podcast, but I have hanging in my office um, a picture of Mother Teresa that was given to me by a staffer at AUL back in 95 when I clerked there. And uh, on that picture of Mother Teresa, and it's been in my office oh, 25, 26 years since I worked at AUL, and it says, let every action of mine be something beautiful for God. It reminds me that I'm grateful for science because the reason I am pro-life as a lawyer has nothing to do with my religion. I believe lots of things because of my religion that I would never put into law. But I believe in... Um, the right to life, because this is a human life. Science tells us that, and we have a responsibility, a moral responsibility, a natural law responsibility to protect life. But at the same time, I'm grateful for people like Jay Seculo and Clark Forsyth, who have led the way in letting every action of theirs be something beautiful for God and sort of inspire those of us who are a little bit younger. Um, I hope Clark won't be offended by that. Um, but to live <laughs> up to that, what they did, they have their careers have been about giving something beautiful to God and our uh, careers, I hope, are along those same lines. And so I'm grateful for AUL, ACLJ, Clark, and the rest, as I said. Wonderful. What about you, Tom? 
Gosh, you know, I mean, the uh, I'll get to mine in a minute. I think, you know, Mark, you're just making me think of uh, something, you know, our friend Carter Sneed often says in, in quoting or paraphrasing Alistair McIntyre, which is just the the importance McIntyre talks of, uh, of of uncalculated giving and graceful receiving, that networks of this uncalculated giving and graceful receiving uh, are at the heart of, of the good society, the good life, basically. They're what characterize family on the most basic level, right? And that that uncalculated giving and graceful receiving that characterizes what we're what we're aiming for, right? In a post-row, post-abortion America, that's ultimately the solution. It sounds high-minded and philosophical, but you think about that in the most practical way. How do you live that in your daily life? Um, you know, in relation to your kids, in relation to your wife or your husband, in relation to your neighbors, and it's not abstract anymore it's very practical what can be done right now and of the things that are done for me how can i receive them well without critique without complaint right without adjustment just receive them um but uh so thank you very much mark for that reflection i think you know i'm i'm grateful for uh for the ability to keep getting outside i think as we continue to live through the pandemic let me check my watch in the calendar what year is it what day is it uh the, these restrictions you know I've, i'm here in dc so the restrictions here are more onerous in other parts of the country we're still supposed to mask indoors uh the mayor doesn't do that but everyone else is and uh you know the the rules are still in place so i'm grateful we got rock creek park here and especially as we get into autumn it's beautiful to hike through rock creek park on a weekend on a saturday afternoon and and hear the uh the, the crunching of the leaves is just about to start so i'm excited for that how about you anna claire you know i i've seen the perils that that the internet has has done to um to isolate people, but I think I can also be grateful for the way that it's allowed me to connect with other pro-life individuals, especially at my age, and and just to know that I'm not alone in thinking about these things and connecting with with AUL and other pro-life organizations. I think we're doing a really good job being present um, in the in the media as much as you know, the media is against us and it's allowed me to make connections and a network and kind of know that we have, we have a lot of people who really care that, um, are doing what they can where they are. Like you said, Tom. A hundred percent. Well, Mark, Anna, Claire, thank you so much for this great conversation. We'll look forward to uh, staying in touch and seeing what the next great thing to come out of South Dakota is. Thank you, Mark, for your leadership. Thank you, Tom. Thank you, Anna. Pleasure. Big fan uh, of South Dakota. <laughs> <laughs> All right. If you enjoyed our conversation with Mark today, please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, wherever you listen to the show, rate it and leave a review. Let a friend know you've discovered life, liberty, and law. Till next time, I'm Tom Shakely, and thank you for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law and for supporting Americans United for Life.